0: This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast here to see off the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams, and I'm joined by Mo Stewart once more. Mo, how does it feel making it your second appearance?
0: Um, I'm glad that I've already got one out of the way because I'd hate for this to be my debut, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I said to you just before, I'm not exactly eagerly anticipating this, but that's not entirely true because there's been times in the past where kind of talking it out has actually made me feel better. So in some ways I am looking forward to this. In some ways I'm not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought that your initial debut was going to be a struggle considering we just threw one all at home to Crystal Palace. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> your second appearance is a loss to Manchester United. So uh, it's not looking good so far. Not a great start. But a um, slightly better start than Nunes, I think. But uh, not, a, not a great start. Um, so we've, we've got to deconstruct it. You know, that's why we're here. Um, it'll probably take up most of the episode, I assume, because there's a fair few talking points around this and a little bit of fallout and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think you might as well just get season two, mate. So in terms of the game... Again, before we go too detailed, general thoughts on how it went. So what were, what What are your thoughts on how Liverpool performed? Did we deserve anything? Uh, things like that.
0: Uh, disappointing was my first thought. I, I, it was the second game in a row where I thought we'd see a reaction and we didn't. And once it happens twice, then it becomes a potentially an issue. And I mean, there are so many things about individual performances that are subjective, like... I saw so many people after the game saying, oh, 10 of them played rubbish, but there was one who was all right. But there was like four or five different players who were the one. So that part's subjective. But the one thing that everybody agreed on, the one thing that wasn't subjective was the application, the effort, the energy. It was almost like they forgot they were playing at Old Trafford. And not only did they forget they were playing at Old Trafford, they were playing against a wounded animal who'd had a long time to stew on their last terrible result and build for this game, so the fact that they weren't ready to meet it on that level was really worrying for me. And I don't really think we saw that until the last ten minutes of the game, which again is worrying in itself. And you start to question yourself: if you can't raise yourself from Man United away, why?
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, mate. I think this this the start was um concerning. Uh, we we looked all over the place. It it wasn't just, it, I mean, a lot of it was application, a lot of it was effort, but it was also just kind of like a, a, a mishmash of players all over the place, you know, positionally versatile and things. And we'll get to why that was the case a little bit, but it just didn't really benefit anybody. And Considering Liverpool couldn't keep the ball either, whenever the ball got turned over, we were, we were wide open on a number of occasions. So, yeah, it wasn't a great performance, I think. Gradually Liverpool came into it, Liverpool got better in the second half and I've actually seen one or two people say we we were the better team and things and uh, I can understand why they they say that in terms of Liverpool maybe dominating the ball and having a few more shots and things like that than Manchester United but I do think generally they applied themselves well, they were quite obviously committed to the cause, the Mm -hmm. fans got behind Mm -hmm. them, they adjusted their game plan specifically for Liverpool and uh, it just resulted in a bit of a collapse At the start, especially as you say, Liverpool just very uncharacteristically not up for the scrap at the the beginning. Um, I'm not sure whether you can put that down to you know the midfield department, maybe aging players, a few injuries in the team. Mm. I'm not sure what it is, but it was, it was weird, wasn't
0: it? I feel like it was um, a, a collection of a lot of things, like in years gone by you go into a game against Man United and you see Henderson and Milner in the same midfield. And you think, okay, that makes sense. Klopp wants to set the tone. He wants to kind of go out there and be aggressive. But the simple fact is, is that where we are now in 2022, I'm not sure that Henderson and Milner fit that remit anymore. That's not really what they're there for, particularly when Henderson's playing as the six, which means he has to be a little bit more disciplined and controlled by nature. So it was almost like, the wrong team for the wrong plan or the wrong plan for the wrong team, whichever way around you want to say it. But it did look like they weren't really empowered to go out there and do damage to Manchester United in a way that Manchester United clearly were.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think, uh, first of all, I think we should probably touch on, on Ten Hag and um, the, the changes that he, that he imposed. Because we talked about this last week when we previewed the game and, we were really toying with the thought of a, you know, a coach from Ajax who's very idealistic, maybe in his in his approach. We was toying with the prospect of him being so philosophical in his ways and so committed to his ways that he was going to try and build from the back with David De Gea against the best pressing team in Europe. <laughs> Sadly, he's not stupid. And he, <laughs> he, he, he didn't do that. Um, from the off from the first five seconds we, we, we pretty much witnessed David Hay is going to go a long goal game so straight away Liverpool's ability to press and get, and gain opportunities from those situations was immediately ruled out really which I'm sure Klopp probably worked on before the games to be honest uh, and on top of that in terms of their personnel changes they probably made all the changes I would have made if i honest uh, they took out Harry Maguire who's just experienced in a tough period at the minute brought him round so, out Cristiano Ronaldo and put Marcus Rashford up front through the middle which I thought was a problem uh, brought in the Lange for the flanks and also took out Luke Shaw and brought, brought in the lad Malasia. um and they, they did look a lot better they, they, they looked a lot more suited to the game plan um, a lot of the players who have, ba- who have basically let them down for years now were, were kind of taken out the side and um, so I do think a, I don't, I'm not sure Klopp will have been ready, as ready, as prepared for that as he would would have been for the Man United we've seen for the previous two games. And B, I think Ten Hag absolutely got it right, to be honest, uh, in what he did. And it, it, it did influence the game.
0: Well, starting at the back, Ten Hag definitely did get it right. And we do have to give him credit for that. I think the idea... In terms of him changing that particular part of his philosophy, I think it was purely down to, let's not do anything that can put ourselves under pressure early on in the game. And playing out from the back is obviously the first thing. Like we said, it was definitely going to be part of our game plan. So the way that they were able to eliminate that straight away was very smart. In terms of who else they brought in as well, unlike you, I'm a big fan of Malassie. I think he's going to very much improve their team. Uh, we all know what Rash was capable of against Man- uh, against Liverpool. We've seen it before. And like you say, it was a team more capable of setting out and performing the game plan. And they'd obviously been instilled with confidence to go out and do that. It was almost like they knew that they were going to catch us on the hop. But they were lucky in some instances. Like, for example, a partnership of Varane and Martinez would have been a lot more tested by Darwin Nunes for example, yeah. or if Liverpool had any striker with any kind of physical presence and height, but they didn't have, we didn't have that. So that made that choice a lot easier. So there were some circumstance that went into it as well. But even going from aside from all of those things, I think the approach to the game, the fact that Manchester United came into the game with confidence and were buoyed by that early start and were able to translate that early start into a goal, which then buoyed them even further. They were able to kind of build from the fragile mess that they were block by block. And the experienced side that Liverpool are, as I've said, and I'm probably going to keep saying over the show, should have been able to see and anticipate what they were trying to do and deal with it, but they didn't.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I must say, I, I don't think this is a, a corner turned for Manchester United by any means. I think this is a one-off game. They adapted their approach for Liverpool. It worked. I but mean, if I'm, I'm honest, not-
0: it, it kind of felt oh. like this, going back to Solskjaer, that's kind of where they were back to. The, yeah. the Solskjaer underdog yeah. team, where they're scrappy and they'll go out there and they'll put their effort in and they'll sometimes overturn teams because they can absorb a lot of pressure. Like going back to what we were saying last week about the Palace game, you can look at the game and say Liverpool dominated the game. Like you were saying, some people said that we had the better team. But Liverpool dominating the ball and not creating chances is part of Man United's game plan. That is in it. That's what they want us to do. So then they can go out and hit us with the space. And that's what they did. So you can look at it from both ways. But in terms of Man United being able to repeat that specific performance with those personnel against the other 18 teams in the league, I'd hold off if I was you.
1: Yeah, I would as well. You know, they've got South Famplan this weekend. De Gea will probably go back to building from the back again, and once they start doing that again, teams will teams will pick them off. Teams will cause problems. I do think they'll be a lot better with a a figure up front that isn't Cristiano Ronaldo and isn't Chris Christian Eriksen. Um. So if it was Rashford up front or Martial seems to be back now, they will they will do better. I think generally, and Casemiro is now being added, but I don't think this is a major corner turn. It, it won't be a corner turn for me until until the goalkeeper goes. I think the goalkeeper is a major problem for them, but um, yeah, we're gonna look back to Liverpool. I mean, where should we start? We'll go we'll go first goal. Um, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't great, was he? No, Virgil Van Dijk. What are you saying,
0: mate? oh uh, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because we were talking last week about his defensive strategy and whether it's down to some kind of instruction from Allison to kind of clear his uh, view or whether it's down to him kind of like holding himself back on the back of his injury or whether it's just he feels like he doesn't have to exert himself in the same way anymore well I feel like all three of those things kind of came to a head in that first goal because you did see him not really put in that extra burst of pace to get in front of his man then when he's blocking the shot like when Sancho does his chop that kind of kills Milner Virgil doesn't know that he's also got Allison on the floor. So if the plan wants to stay out of his line of vision, that plan would have been aborted as soon as he knew that the goalkeeper was already on the floor. But he didn't know that. So if that was the case, then he should have then stuck his leg out. But he didn't. So it kind of, in my mind, gives a bit more credence to that being why it's happening. But whatever the reason, it does not look good. And this is the third game out of three that there's been an error around the goal where we can highlight Virgil van Dijk. He's not the only one, obviously going back to the application. Again, we have to mention Trent, everyone who's seen the replays now of him jogging back into position. And we can talk about energy and effort and stuff like that, but that's very early in the game, very early in the game. The score is nil, nil Manchester United have been on. They've been on, they've been on in the ascendancy. But you've seen so many times when teams are in ascendancy. If they don't get that goal, then it can dissipate just as quickly. You should know that. You should be putting all of your effort into getting back. But he gives up. He literally gives up before the goal is scored. And for me, that's unacceptable. The the things with with Virgil could be down to a multitude of things. That effort application should just be there.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, does Van Dijk? I don't know what. To- What's specifically up with him, if I'm honest? I think in, the, in that moment, James Milner's spot on with, with what he's saying. James Milner's absolutely right to have a go at him for not closing down the shot. You have to close down the shooter in that moment if he's on the ball in space on the penalty spot. You can't just stand there like a statue. And that was kind of what he did. Um, it's it's a shame that Milner's the one who's who's having to have a go at him because Milner probably knows in himself that his own game isn't particularly great at the minute. Um but it's it's absolutely right that he had to go at Van Dijk, and I must be honest, since we've been recording this show years and years now, um you can probably count the number of times I've criticised Van Dyke on one hand. I very, very rarely do I ever go at him yeah. and it's almost a case of when I do want to criticise him or see something that I would work on, I almost have to second-guess myself because he's he's that good that you'd almost yeah. look at yourself and think, have I got this wrong?
0: Um, but you know what? I think that's part of the problem. Now, I'm not saying that he himself has got complacent, but he is very aware of the aura that he has with the opposition players. I mean, he speaks to them, he sees them. We hear them talking about him in interviews all the time. The way that they kind of revere him as a, as a defender, so he knows what he does to people. So sometimes that's a big part of his defensive armory. It's almost, it's almost like he's daring them to do stuff. Well, now people are doing stuff, so now you've got to change it up.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he across the three games so far, he is not being great. He he has been. I go as far as saying he's probably been bad. Um, he's been nowhere near his usual level. He's just for a little bit of re- weird perspective. He's already committed four fouls last season. He committed ten all the season, um, and and he played virtually every game. I think his it, it does seem a little bit like it almost complacency or almost like he. I mean, I don't know if there's like a, a weird thing in the squad now where specifically players like Van Dijk and Gomez are looking around seeing the whole squad drop like flies in terms of injuries. They you know themselves that they've had big knocks and the World Cups in the winter? <laughs> I don't know what it is. It, it, it can be a mental thing, but I mean, it does look haven't... like he's reluctant to play at 100%. And as a result of doing that, he isn't. he's not able to coach. He, he's not coaching particularly well so far.
0: No, well, I mean, I think about the start of last season again, when they were all just coming back from injury. They, him and Matip both came back at the same time, but I felt like in those early games, it was Matip who was doing a lot of the kind of front foot defending. He was doing a lot of the, the sprints, the, the, the duels in the air and the kind of covering off the early man where Virgil was kind of covering the back using his Jedi mind tricks, obviously. Um, and that worked. And that worked really well while Virgil got up to speed and then towards the kind of autumn to time, He kind of clicked back into the Virgil we know and love and from there was fantastic. This season, if you look at it, he's had three different partners in three different league games. That's going to make a difference, particularly when you think about the difference between going from Matip to Phillips and then back down to Gomez. And I mean, as much as him and Gomez have got a great partnership and had a great partnership, it's been a while since they've played together. It's been a long time since they played together. I believe it was according to 7-2. the 7-2, which is like yeah. seasons ago. Like, and yes, obviously they'd have had training, etc. but you can't tell me game isn't different. A game at Old Trafford again is different again. So you can see where he might be a little bit um, compromised to a certain extent, but still, these are, these are minor things that a player of his caliber normally is able to brush off. And, I'm sure we're going to probably talk about positions and average positions and all that kind of stuff as well. I saw the average position for the, this game and he looked at a lot considerably deeper than I was expecting him to be. And I don't know what that's down to. I don't know whether, again, it's going back to his form, his fitness, whether we trust his body as well, but it was noticeable. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel.
1: I mean just looking at the, the the three games so far you know if, if you think of Liverpool's two difference makers when, when he was signed Alisson and Van Dijk so far both of them have played every single minute but they just haven't really made the difference that they, they usually do so in, in the first game uh I think Mitrovic's header I think Alisson should save it personally later in the game Van Dijk conceded a penalty against Palace I mean, it is a wonderful finish from Wilford Zaha. But yeah. Van Dijk kind of allows the shot, and Alisson gets beat. You know, so maybe you could argue in previous seasons when they're both a bit more on it, maybe they deal with that a little bit better. And then against Manchester United, again, Van Dyke's majorly a fault for the first game. If the first goal, doesn't really have a great game. And then later in the match, Alisson faces a 1v1 with Marcus Rashford, usually dominates them. But again, gets beat. So, I think a lot of Liverpool's issues at the minute stem from those those big difference makers in the team, the basically the team's best players, and you can include the likes of Fabinho in this as well. Just don't look themselves. They just they just don't look um, usual level. It's it's really weird. You'd think we'd been, you know, you you'd think we'd been playing fifty games, but we're, the fact yeah. we're three games in, it's really strange and it's hard to explain i think Klopp has almost been a bit taken aback by it because it's not something you can predict it's not specifically tactical it's not yeah it's just it's weird
0: it is weird and that's why i mean he made the one flippant offhand mark about the witch and people have ju- jumped on it because it's, it seems almost out of character for what he said but it does speak to a certain kind of it's out of our controlness about it and if you think about the yeah. way Football teams are run these days, particularly the way our football team is run. Control is a big part of it. Be able to control everything in your environment. And I think back to the relinquishing of control that Klopp had over pre-season. You didn't want to go on a, on a, on a lucrative pre-season tour, but we did because we hadn't done it in a while and we had to. And that made a difference to the way the pre-season ended up being. And then you have a knock-on effect from there. I think about the end of last season. I still think as much as we've got a lot to take from the way that we played last season, the fact that it was, against such tiny margins, like one point, one goal away from immortality. And you can't tell me as humans, that's not going to be on your mind. And then you come into the season and then you start slowly and then you look across the Man City and they've started like a house on fire. And you're already on the back foot and your mind starts drifting, thinking, "Oh," and all of those things aren't going to be the deciding factor, but they are all the things that can add up when you would string them together. And then you throw in the injuries and the injuries that have happening now are starting to look like the injuries that happened two seasons ago. And that didn't happen at all last season, really. So it's almost like that big pendulum that swung over there, swung back and if you think back to how horrible mentally that period was for everybody, particularly those players, the idea of that coming back, it's gonna have an effect as well.
1: Yeah, it is a scary thought, and I think it's in Klops, I don't think i will ever leave Klopp's head to be honest considering how much it's scarred in that season. Um but I've just touched on on Milner earlier, you know, when it comes to Van Dyke's Van Dyke's moments. I just wanted to to have a little bit of a conversation about him because he's a difficult one for us to analyse because the bottom line is I feel a bit sorry for him. I, I don't think he should be playing in these games from the off. I don't think he should be starting two Premier League games in a row, specifically when one of them is at Old Trafford. Last season, I think he developed a role for himself where he would be the man to introduce, specifically when Liverpool have a lead with about 20 minutes left and he'd kind of come on as a bit of a coach almost on the pitch, relay instructions from the sidelines that have been given to him before he came on. And he commit the odd tactical foul, waste time, and just kind of offer that kind of intangible experience, whatever that even means. Um, but this season, he's he's having to play more of a part, despite the fact he's 36 and mm. could have easily left the club in the summer. So be- before we, we go too hard on him or anything like that, I did just want to give him a shout towards like, it's it's kind of a shame that he's part of the problem at the minute in the team because he's not playing particularly well. But I still value him in the squad. Mm-hmm. It's just a shame he's playing such an entitled part at the moment.
0: That's exactly it. I think when you look over the course of a season and over the course of a squad, no one would really argue that there's still a viable place for James Milner. It's specific times, but that's the problem with time those times become more and more specific. And those times haven't occurred in those first two or three games. It's not what you're talking about. In fact, I did something about it earlier on in the season about Milner looking at him last year. And he was actually at his most successful when he was playing in the six. Now, that's not what you necessarily um, expect with him. But again, the energy that's required there compared to maybe being an eight and having to get up and down probably a bit more suited to him these days. If you look at the game in Manchester United, the amount of times there was big spaces, they weren't able to protect the counter-attack threat. They weren't able to cover over in the way that uh, even Fabinho's really a lot more, better at. So, yeah, like you say, the, um, the, the task that's been given to him doesn't really put him in the position to succeed. And then on top of that, I feel like he... As one of the leaders in that team, is, is probably the one who's most aware of this malaise, and he's trying his best to try and fight his way out of it. But sometimes, by doing that, he's kind of you know making the team a bit more unbalanced. He's running here, there, and everywhere. Uh, I mean, I think again going back to his positions, I think he's the closest one we had to a central forward in terms of <laughs> average positions. Which, if you sat him down after the game and said, James. Do you think you should be the one in the centre 4 position? He'd probably say no. He was he
1: was everywhere. To be fair, and again, like as some of that comes down to the game plan, we will touch on that in a sec. But just in terms of his performance against United, we we did we did mention if maybe last week or the week before about pass completion numbers. Now, obviously, the most basic stat in the world doesn't really offer that much of an insight, but it can offer some insight into a level of control that like you have over the game, right? Mm-hmm. In this match, Liverpool's two lowest pass completion players, if you like, where Trent Alexander-Arnold, bottom, as usual, and Mohamed Salah. T- Liverpool's two biggest risk-takers and Liverpool's probably two biggest threats. So I've got no real issue with that. But again, if you remove those two, bottom of the list again is, is James Milner. And, um, and we spoke about that a few weeks ago, I think he was batting them as well. So when it comes to playing him in the middle of the park, specifically in these kind of intense games where the the ball's kind of fumbling about and things, he is not the best when it comes to establishing the level of control Liverpool need to win games. Um, On top of his very low pass completion for the match, he posted one progressive pass. So uh, you can't really say that, okay, he's he's ball often, but is he is he adding value with his passes? Because he, he posted one progressive pass. For a bit of perspective on that, Harvey Elliott posted a better pass completion and posted eight progressive passes. So, no, that's kind of more of what you're after, I suppose. So in yeah. terms of Milner, again, I am um, conscious of having too much of a go on and I'm, I'm highlighting that he's an issue because it's pretty obvious really, isn't it? But the, the issue is that he's playing. <laughs> Not that he's... Uh, not that he's a bad player in a way, any means. It's, it's 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 that he's he's having to take to the field in these high profile games, and he's playing. i seventy two minutes, you know, so yeah. it's not ideal.
0: It's not ideal. It's it's difficult because you look at that and you think, is it more an idea where even though you we're in this position where Liverpool have only got really old or really young midfielders. I spoke about it a little bit last week. I, I wrote an article yeah. about it on .com if you want to go and read it. But it's kind of hitting home here. So you have you basically have to choose between energy and experience rather than having both. And maybe the, the two experience, one energy ratio that we had against Manchester United probably wasn't right. Maybe we could have gone two energy, one experience. I know it's a big game, but when you look at the results, maybe this is just hindsight talking, when you look at the results, I think, like you say, if James Milner's not able to find his teammates, if we know that he's taking up very central, higher positions and still not able to find his teammates, and is still not able to stop counterattacks coming through, it's hard to find a positive in, in his selection there. And so you, that's another thing that annoyed me in the game, to be honest. I feel like as much as Klopp was, didn't really have anyone to trust so much on the bench I still think that when the game's going that badly for that long you have to change it regardless
1: yeah I mean part of the reason it went bad was because of the game plan Um, I have touched on this in a piece recently which did quite well in terms of retweets (laughs) but I had to suffer a a bit of abuse (laughs) As usual, I think I've uh, I've got another ten people compared to before on the block list. I think, um, <laughs> but yeah, Liverpool's approach for the game, right? So be- before the game, Klopp touched on in his pre-match interview, he specifically mentioned uh, the fact that Eric Ten Hag adopts a a defensive approach that is kind of man marking. Basically, Liverpool's approach for context is is zonal, so um you don't get that many. Proper man marking schemes out there. You get like Marcel Bielsa's leads, uh Atalanta, when we faced Atalanta in the Champions League, teams like that. And when Liverpool faced the likes of Leeds, especially you because it's man marking, you, you can kind of just say to your you front your front players basically, go anywhere. <laughs> and if you if you run anywhere and if you vacate your designated position, if you like It can really disrupt a man-marking scheme and it can result in chaos essentially. And with United being having two games behind them in the Premier League on the Ten Hag, I can see the logic in wanting to use such a strategy to basically instigate chaos in United's defensive ranks. But I think it caused more harm than good for Liverpool. I think it confused Liverpool more than United because I don't think United, although they were, although they're man-orientated, I don't think they were they weren't like Leeds or or, or or Atalanta where it's literally you stick to your man wherever he goes. It's like full 100% intense man marking. Mm. United weren't really that. So it ended up kind of confusing. Liverpool's system, I thought. Milner ended up as their most advanced player sometimes. Elliot was on the left sometimes rather than the right. Trent was inside a lot. Um, Henderson was, was, was sometimes more advanced than Firmino, <laughs> which when you think about it is a bit insane. But it was it was all intentional as a means of disrupting yeah. United. I just think it was, in the early stages especially, it was it was too much of an overload. It was just, it was overflowing almost. And the fact that we couldn't keep the ball made it even worse.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with all of that. I think when you're asking the team to be a little bit more freestyle, particularly the front players, what you are hopefully relying on is those front players... particular being in form and having confidence and i mean most other feels like you always has confidence regardless but it's hard to say that he's in red hot form right now and that was kind of what we saw it was almost like they were all kind of straining but because they were all kind of freewheeling it there was no kind of joined up thinking and so there was a little bit too much isolation again Going back to the average. I keep referencing that average position thing because <laughs> I looked at it and instantly it told me what was wrong. Like you sometimes you look at some stats and you think, oh, okay, maybe. Like I looked at that and I just said, Yeah, that's not how Liverpool are meant to play. Uh, the fullbacks were far too deep. The front three, which are normally between the width of the post, uh, the width of the penalty area, are way, way wider. Like I mentioned, Virgil and um Joe Gomez were a lot deeper than their midfielders and there wasn't as much connection there were maybe a few groups here a few groups there but there didn't seem to be a joined up plan and to be honest with you when you are a team who is low on confidence the kind of way we are feeling a bit sorry for ourselves you kind of want to stick to the plan like when you don't know what to do just stick to what you know and hopefully that will keep going but we kind of did the opposite and it didn't really work Anfield on the
1: Blood Red Channel. I mean, one of, one of the the major downsides of the, the the way things transpired, specifically in the first half, was was Roberto Firmino. That was mm. he he was who wrote the piece on because I I kind of felt sorry for him watching the game. I thought he p- played fairly well, to be honest. Um, he roamed more than ever before. From his uh, his position, which we know he does anyway, that's kind of what we've, what we've become accustomed to. But he did it um times ten basically. Yeah. I think he posted more touches in the middle third than in any single Premier League game that he's ever played. Which kind of offers an insight into how deep he was coming. Yeah. But again, touching on Man United's man marking scheme, that was kind of the plan. Is his plan was to come deep and and his plan. The plan was to come deep in, and his game, it's always been associated with just p- providing glue uh, and and linking things, connecting things, being Liverpool's connector. And, and that's exactly what he did, just in deeper areas than usual. Yeah. The issue is the, the rest of the system didn't really work. And as a result of the rest of the system not working, it looked like Firmino was just kind of going off the map. And, and, and it resulted in supporters kind of being a bit like, mm-hmm. we haven't got a striker. Where on earth is he going? We need goals, but it's, it's part of his instructions. If you see what I mean, and, and, and his, his role on the day, mm-hmm. I think he completed something like 44 of his 52 passes. So in terms of keeping the ball in a position and not riding that glue, which he's always done, he did exactly that. He just got kind of let down by the structure around him. I felt.
0: Yeah, I, I can see I can see that. I mean, I think both you and the people who are saying we needed a proper forward are right. I think that he was doing what he was asked to and he was doing it well. What we normally see when he comes in is particularly in a man-marking system, one of the defenders come out, which they didn't really so much do because if they did, there would have been space. But the other thing that normally happens is that the wider forwards... Come inside and use that space, and exactly I think yeah. that was something that Klopp mentioned in his post match interview from the first to the second half, he wanted Salah closer to the goal because again, they were him and Diaz were way wide. Like, normally, you have everybody except the fullbacks in that central strip, and they were both outside of it. And yeah, when you've got Firmino who's linking with the midfielders, the point is, like I say, he comes deep. There was a space behind him. And then the people he's linking with or him himself are able to find those runners, but those runners weren't running for whatever reason. And so you get a kind of a disjointed system. In some ways you can look at that Firmino performance and say that if, the, if you added a Nunez in front of him, it would have been fantastic. You can yeah. almost say, okay, maybe that's going to be the future of Firmino as a Liverpool player playing yeah, that tip yeah. of the, the midfield diamond, but having a striker ahead of him. And once again, we go back to circumstances, the only reason we weren't able to do that. So then you think, okay, well, we've got a game plan that would have worked perfectly if we had this. Maybe that means we shouldn't have used that game plan if we don't yeah.
1: have this. I mean, I think it it would have worked a lot better if, as you say, if if Diaz and Salah were, were permanently kind of within the width of the penalty box, as you say, you know, no not wider than that. But the, the issue was, Firmino was dropping off and, you know, trying to take players with him and, and connecting in the middle of the park and things like that. But nobody was kind of filling the void then by coming inside. Salah was remaining wide, Diaz was remaining wide. And Liverpool, usually when people say strikerless, it's not really strikerless because somebody is constantly occupying the space of the striker, whether it's a midfielder or a, or whatever. This was <laughs> strikerless in its truest form, really, because Firmino was kind of getting off and he was <laughs> not being he was not being replaced. Nobody was kind of uh, occupying the space until the second half. And in the second half, Firmino continued to drop off but not as deep. Salah and and Diaz were a bit more narrow. And things just worked a bit better. Liverpool played a lot better than the second half, retained possession a bit better. Um, But yeah, it was just, a lot of things went wrong. It was a a nightmare. But I I personally think that Firmino has played worse than that at Old Trafford. And Liverpool have scored scored four. (laughs) But but because in this game, we got beat and we looked so disjunct at the start and people were so kind of confused with what we were trying to do. Mm. he became the um, scapegoat for me. Ball.
0: Well, it was the obvious difference, wasn't it? Again, like you say, if you don't know the game plan, the interesting thing for me was the second half, particularly the last, well, particularly when Fabio Carvalho came on was when I was most interested because you had yeah. Firmino still operating in those deeper positions. Then you had Diaz ahead of him in the striker role and for Fabio Carvalho operating wide from the left. Now that, looked like a formation that suited all three of those players. Now, we've still got another game to play before Nunez comes back. I wonder if we see that, whether from the start or in the next game, because it was able to, like I say, Diaz is, is, is has those central striker instincts as well. He has great movement, so he's able to find space within those central positions. Fabio Cavallo played a lot of time with Fulham off the left. And as you say, you still got Bobby Firmino there. Carvalho, what, one of the things he was really good at at Fulham was arriving late in the box, whether he's from wide or from central. And when you've got that kind of plan with Firmino coming, dropping deep and creating space, then you need someone to be coming in late to kind of mess with their game plan. That's the whole crux of that whole um, tactic. So I'd like to see more of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I did touch on when we first got Carvalho and things, I touched on how he's He's got that Coutinho nature too, but he also has a little bit of, of Deli Alley in him, personally, yes. in, in terms of his, his tendency to just arrive at the right time. And we did see a little bit of that as you just said. Um, but I suppose that opens up the conversation for the midfield department. <laughs> now it's obviously it's the talking point at the minute, isn't it? You know, uh, Liverpool needs to buy a midfielder and, and all that stuff. I'm not gonna go. Galaxy brain on this. Liverpool do need a midfielder. It's pretty <laughs> obvious, you know. I think everybody would would accept that. The issue is for me, I am absolutely one million percent in the camp that you should not force it and you should get the right player in. Mm. So my issue would just be the fact Liverpool haven't moved suggests the right player is not there in their eyes, and that would be my worry to start saying go and buy a player, go and buy a player, because I do not want them to go and buy someone who, further down the line, will become a little bit redundant.
0: Well, that's one way of looking at it, and I agree. The other way of looking at it is maybe their eyes need adjusting. Now, that sounds kind of cavalier because they've got a lot of credit in the bank. But what I mean by that is that they set the bar very high to become a Liverpool player. Very, very high. And that has worked for us so far. And part of the reason why that's highest of all in midfield is because, again, you think about what they're asked to do. It's different playing in a Liverpool midfield when you're playing with Trent and Robbo than playing in a midfield for nearly any other team because of the, the demands put on you, because of the demands that they have to do within the team structure. So, again, the the, the gene pool, in theory, narrows. Me, personally... I thought Matias Nunez would have done the job. I really do. Yeah. But the problem with this high bar is that it means that you're putting a higher premium on those who've already cleared that bar, i.e. the players already in the squad. And so the problems with them, okay. i.e. The, fact that the, the the availability, are minimalized because you think, okay, but they've got this really big uh, plus, the fact that we know that they can play in our team. And it's like, when you've got one or two of those in a bank of nine midfielders, that's fine. When you've got five in a bank of nine midfielders, that's a problem. And let's not forget, 12 months from now, Cater, Oxlade, Chamberlain, and Milner will be out of contract after spending all this time talking about how on earth did we get in a situation where we were having to do deals for Salamana and Firmino in the same summer? We're doing the same thing again. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why I'm saying we need to buy someone now because like next summer I don't want to be sitting and having this conversation saying why are we trying to buy three midfielders in one go that's a really really upheaval we knew this already let's sort it out now
1: yeah my, my, my issue is just it's just who that would be my thing like I've seen lots of calls for example for, for Lucas Susich who's currently at Red Bull Salzburg and if you, if you think of If you actually put that into perspective, right? Lucas Susic turns 20 in two weeks. So he's currently a teenager and, and and supporters are talking like Liverpool's whole situation or whatever will be fine or or better at least if we come to a 19 year old from the Austrian Bundesliga. So, (laughs) you know, things like that, It it, you don't want to, put too much pressure on the kid for a start and he's probably not gonna solve no. the problem single handedly as he's no. quite clearly a player for the future and things. So deals like that, I'm just not sure it's entirely worth it really. But I do think Liverpool's midfield department is a problem at the minute. Teams are getting teams are getting through to the last line mm. too easy. Um Man United did it. And I t- I tweeted during the game, Trent was trying to play his usual passing game as as he always will. You know, Hollywood passes all the time and that's what he's in the team to do. That's the role he's being presented with. The reason we don't usually suffer too much from that is because the the loose balls on the back of his risks, when they go wrong, the loose balls get swept up by Liverpool's midfield. That's always been the case. Um, Trofabino's great, Henderson's been doing it. Wijnaldum, Thiago, whatever. Mm-hmm. But this season, uh, specifically against Fulham and against United, those balls haven't really been swept up to the same level. Um, They haven't really been hoovered up at all. and You you kind of need that to happen. Otherwise, every time a player takes a risk like Trent, you will suffer a counter-attack. And I remember a few years back, Spurs suffered from this. Spurs continued to play the same way with the likes of Ericsson taking risks. But those loose balls that a teammate would sweep up to then start the next attack and the next attack and the next attack, Spurs didn't replace I think it was might have been Moussa Dembélé who left. Victor Wanyama got injured all the time. As his then started to kind of decline a little bit, so it it definitely needs sorting. I don't know how long the injured the injured players are away from from returning. That obviously plays a massive factor. Yeah. But it it is a bit of a risk if, if Liverpool go into this season now with this with the the midfield departments in the current state that it is.
0: I agree, and I can see why they, they have decided to, to make decisions they have. I can see within their remit why it makes sense because you can look at it and say they're more likely to pay big money on a younger player like Susic than a, a player who's already in their peak years, say like a Nicola Barella, because you're going to have a higher sell-on value. But the fact is, is that that the, 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 the selling value and the profit and the benefit of that selling value is nullified by the fact that right here and now, the greater need is players in their peak years, in that midfield, players who are ready to go now, players who are able to transform it immediately. And then, like you say, we've got all these players who are only a little bit injured, but still unavailable right now. So you don't want to think, okay, we're going to get to a situation if we buy loads of midfielders, suddenly we're going to have too many knocking around the place. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be losing three of them next summer. So you want to get some of them in now. And then obviously, so even if you do get to a situation where in February and March and it feels like there's some good players left out of the squad, that's only going to be a situation for another few months. Field on the Blood Red Channel.
1: I don't know if you've got any thoughts on potential players who would fill a void. Mo. No, but um, you know, few players have been linked. For example, like Moises Caselo has, has been linked of, of, of Brighton. One of the reasons I think that is possible is because he <laughs> somehow he is apparently on less than four grand a week. Yeah. Um, now, if that's the case, regardless of how long he's contracted for. That would not be an expensive deal to, to do. And if, if he would come in as a player, he, he, you could probably realistically give him less than 50 grand a week and he'd probably bit your hand off. Yeah. So that could be a really cheap solution for Liverpool to explore. He's only 20, but he does look like he started the season well. Yori um, Tillemans is another player out there. Don't know what's happening there. but not why anyone's trying to get him. But maybe there's reasons behind that. And I'm not sure he's he's got that intense... Tag that you probably need to play for Liverpool. I'm not sure he's that kind of player. He's more of a technician, isn't he? Um, yes. I had a little look for a piece earlier in the week as well. There's a lad out there called Fabian Ruiz. He's yes. 29. Uh, 29. He's 26 at the minute, so he's a little bit beyond Liverpool's age curve, uh, age criteria. But he runs out of contract next year. He's reportedly in in talks with well, not in talks, but PSG have reportedly interested in him. They haven't agreed to fear yep. and like that yet, but. He's a player who can play as a number eight, can play as a six. Established Champions League player, year mm-hmm. left on his deal, but Liverpool aren't getting linked with him. Um, so I do think there's, there's one or two solutions out there, but they're just maybe they're not Bellingham, too many no, solutions. No.
0: And 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 this is the thing, isn't it? Is that Liverpool don't settle. Liverpool don't buy someone who they wouldn't have bought only yeah. for a situation. They, they change the timeline of when they're going to buy people, but they're not going to buy someone who they don't they hadn't already considered, which is sometimes frustrating because you see sometimes those opportunities can be taken. I mean, to be honest, I do feel like shakiri was probably one area where that didn't happen, where it was just an opportunity that came up and yeah. he was just like, okay, well, the, the downsides aren't very high. But... Outside of that, that lack of flexibility sometimes can, sometimes can you can look at it in hindsight and think that might cost us because, yes, we trust our tra- transfer committee; they've been very good, but they're not always right. I mean, like we always remember, um, Klopp wanted Brand over Mohamed Salah, but like well, some people say, oh, that proves the transfer committee know what they're doing, but it also proves that sometimes you have to change your mind sometimes the guy that you didn't think was the guy is actually the guy. So <laughs> I do think that an idea of widening that pool, I'm looking, like I said, Nicola Barella, um, someone else who I like, who I know that we won't be in for, who I think would do quite well, Sergei Minkovic-Savage. Genuinely, okay. like I think we've got to the stage now where the profile of guy who we're looking for is a bit wider because we're looking for more than one. And I do think we're going to need someone who's going to have a little bit more physicality that's something we're lacking. And height, something else we're lacking. He is someone who has ability of intelligence with his runs, <clears throat> so he'll be able to arrive late, like we mentioned before Fabio Cavallio. Um Probably passing stats would need a little bit of improvement, but I can see a world where he <clears throat> works well in our team. Um, another guy who I like, who again is quite young, Matzons Kakare a Leon. I think he's a fantastic player. I think that if we can find a way to get him into our team at some point in the future, then we will be set for a long, long time. He looks the absolute business. But again, he is a young player to so ask him to come in and instantly transform the team is asking a lot. So I would say for the immediate future, I wouldn't be looking at him, but he's one i have on my list for the summer for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, say for example, Borelli, I think Liverpool would uh, absolutely explore that one. But the, the issue with Borella is he's, he's contracted until 2026 so that would be another four years on his deal and he couldn't gain. he ends about what Mane was in I think mm. so um, that would be an expensive deal for Liverpool to do but I think Liverpool would do it but just if they did it now it would be a very costly um, I think if, if you look at Liverpool's problem at the minute whatever midfielder we get in I think has to kind of be a bit like Many in the sense that he leans towards the defensive side more than the, the offensive side of the game. Yeah. So to round up the show this week, we're not going to have enough time to talk about Bournemouth, but to round up the show this week, I think we should touch on, an overall what is going wrong mm-hmm. for the, for the season. So far, we're three games in. We haven't won a game yet. Two draws, one loss. It's not great. How much should we worry? is basically the uh, the, the quick-talking point with this one. But one thing I want to touch on first, just to capture what the, the numbers are suggesting, is it's basically what we all know anyway, but you can see it clearer in the numbers. So, so far this season for expected goals. This is not including penalties. Expected goals, Liverpool are third in the table uh, behind Arsenal, who've played... I think off the top of my head, three relatively all right fixtures. I don't think they've played anyone big yet. And Manchester City, shock. So in that sense, Liverpool's attack is pretty okay. In terms of shots, Liverpool are second to only Manchester City. So in the attack and department, which and this was the case last year as well, Liverpool are fine really. Defensive side of the game is a little bit different. So Top of the table is Arsenal, Manchester City, Wolves, Brighton, Spurs, Leeds, Brentford, Chelsea, Everton, West Ham.
0: Wait, Everton?
1: Everton. And then Liverpool. (laughs) So Liverpool have conceded so far. Liverpool have given up shots worth about 3.7 xG, which has them about mid-table. In terms of the shots they've faced, they've actually faced the third fewest shots. Uh, They've only faced 29. Uh, City and Arsenal are the only two who are better in that sense. But if you look at the expected gold per shot, Liverpool are the worst in the league. So what that essentially means is Liverpool don't give away much in terms of volume, but when they do, it's clear-cut, the the clear-cut chances. So Liverpool every now and then get
0: cut open. And that's structure. That's the entire structure. What that is, the reason why we don't concede a lot of shots is because we dominate possession. And so the, the opposition don't literally have the ball enough to have those more shots. But because we dominate possession and because of the way that we are flooding teams, when we lose it, we are leaving ourselves vulnerable in a way that we hadn't done previously. That really feels like the whole thing. When you look at the goals, like, we were talking last week about the quality of shots and we are getting a lot of shots the XG is high traditionally with those kind of things over the course of a longer uh, period of time, it will kind of re- regress back to the average. Once we get Darwin Nunes back, Diego Jota back and not just back, but fe- Jota feeling himself feeling firing, those numbers will start to look better in terms of, we're actually scoring more goals as well as getting high shots and high XG. The other side, that structural part of it, you worry. Because at the moment, you look at Thiago to come back, you'll probably make an improvement. But outside of that, there's not really many people missing from where we should normally be. So then it's like, I mean, how many of the guys who are out are going to be first choice? I'd say just Thiago.
1: Yeah, probably, yeah. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> and,
0: uh, so, yeah, you, you think about it and you think, OK, well, that's more than just getting players back. Is it? Is it physical? Are they, dra- going back to what we are saying before, the hangover from last season? And if that is the case, well, then that's a tougher fix.
1: Well, this is this is why Liverpool wanted two many. And it, it is a shame because he was genuinely perfect for, for this. <laughs> he can play as an eight, he can play as a six. And he was a defensive-minded midfielder who just naturally swept up balls <laughs> in the middle of the field. That was just what he did naturally, and he's just very, very good at it. He's like a spider. Um, and Liverpool lacked that player. I think Liverpool need that player. And some of the players who are available at the minute, you, you know, you don't want to sign them and they don't really address your problem. Like, I mentioned Tillemans. Does Tillemans address that? I don't um, know no, and if you look at Liverpool's numbers so far this season in terms of their matches, we haven't really touched on that this much so much this season so far. But Liverpool haven't really deserved to win any of the games they've played against Fulham. They posted next year one point nine. Fulham posted one point four with the penalty, so that's that. You you haven't done enough there to, to put the result beyond reasonable doubt. That, that, that you can still get easily there. Then against Palace, Liverpool posted 1.7 XG. Palace posted 1.5. That's a draw. And against yeah. Manchester United, Liverpool posted 1.5. And Palace and Man United posted 1.7. So again, that's a draw probably. So Liverpool haven't really dominated a game yet in terms of doing a lot at one end and keeping things really quiet at the other end. They haven't really done it once yet. So... Uh, It doesn't bode well, but just for a bit of... for to to end on a nice note. um, In terms of the attacking numbers I touched on before, so far this season, bottom of the whole Premier League for XG is Bournemouth. (laughs) (laughs) And bottom of the whole Premier League for shots is Bournemouth. And it's not even close. They they have played City, to be fair to them. But it, it offers a bit of hope, I suppose. Um, we'll have to see where we go with that. Mo, have you got close into close? Uh...
0: Well, I mean, I was going to say Bournemouth could probably look at that and say, well, we've played Arsenal and Man City, they're the two best teams, so that obviously our numbers are going to be bad." But, in all honesty, it's, it's hard to not overreact because what we've seen in previous years where a lead can be hard to kind of overcome sometimes, but at the same time, it's the fact that there's lots of the people who we've been able to rely on for so long who haven't looked themselves at the thing that's most worrying me. I think we will look better when our players come back, but I think it might take more than that to start to look like Liverpool that we know and love. But I still think we'll beat Bournemouth.
1: Yeah, I think as well. I mean, you, you <laughs> have to throw into put it into perspective, and you, you have to remember that we do have a, a notable number of injuries at the minute um suspensions and it's just not ideal and on top of that you have established top performers who just for whatever reason seem off their usual level mm-hmm. so the first thing we can address is is the second element that I've just touched on there if if, if we play against Bournemouth and Alex van Dyke Fabinho and Allison in particular uh what we expect in terms of performance Liverpool should have enough to start getting back to winning ways and and we can take it from there basically but yeah, any days. it doesn't look great yet, but, yeah, you know, we'll see where we go with it. Yeah. So, Mo, thanks for joining us, mate.
0: No problem, no problem. Hopefully next time we're talking about some good Liverpool play as well.
1: Yeah, first time this season, hopefully. And, uh, yeah, to the listeners, thanks for tuning in. And uh, be sure to do, do the same again next week. See you then.
0: You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.